Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Being a man isn't always about being tough and leading the pack. It's also about allowing yourself to fail and be vulnerable too. We talk to the co-authors of a new book called Emerging Men and hear their inspiring personal stories of struggle and success. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It is often said it's a man's world we live in, and when we look at the many organisations, sporting heroes, and the way the media portrays the world, it's no wonder that image is constantly perpetuated. But there are many other sides to men that are not often discussed, being powerless or feeling insecure, or even failing. Tara Hall is a Connecticut author and has released a book called Emerging Men, where she brings together male leaders from different walks of life and different backgrounds and let them tell their stories of confronting their fears, doubts, insecurities and unwelcome labels that society has placed on them. Joining me on the podcast are five gentlemen who are co-authors of a book called Emerging Men. Joining me is Nico Johnson, Ryan King, Mintu Kumar Nath, Kevin Booker Jr. and Carl Hemingway. Gentlemen, to all of you, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm going to turn to you first, Nico. Tell us a little bit about your extract that is in this incredible book. Sure. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you having me on tonight. So, so in my portion of the book, I really go into my introduction into parenthood, <laughs> which was an early introduction for me um, into fatherhood. I had my first child as a teenager, still in high school. And it was the shock of my life. Uh, it was not something that was planned. And it was a scary, scary time for me. Kind of take the readers along the journey of, of my path to parenthood and how I almost lost out on the opportunity to be in my daughter's life. My oldest child is, is a girl. And just the journey through that experience, some of the thoughts that went through my mind at the time, some of the mistakes that I made after I found out that uh, she was on the way and how it came full circle into me having a second chance, which is the title of my chapter, Second Chances, taking advantage of the second chance to be in my child's life, be the father that I wanted to and needed to be, and being in her life as I should have been. And, you know, without giving too much, it was a, a pretty miraculous story, and in my opinion. And I just wanted to share that with the viewers and hopefully give them some, some inspiration out of it. Very proud father and now grandfather. Um, oh, so. congratulations. And I'm just going to read a little bit from an excerpt that was actually sent before the interview from your book called Second Chances. And there's a little bit in there, which is interesting. You say, my daughter could have easily fallen into the foster care system raised by strangers, leaving both she and I to wonder what had happened. I mean, those are powerful words. So absolutely. And, and she was in the foster care system for a short period of time. And again, through a, <laughs> through a miraculous, through a miraculous happening, you know, they were able to get in touch with me and I was able to do what I needed to do to coordinate transportation, coordinate travel to court. I was on the total opposite side of the United States, all the way in Montana, and she was in Georgia. And somehow they, they got a hold of me and let me know that my daughter was there and didn't have her mother with her. 
And again, I, you know, I take readers on the journey on to what happened to her mother and, and how that situation happened. But yes, miraculously, she could have been left and raised with people that were not in, in her bloodline. And, I, and I'm thankful that I was able to personally raise my daughter. Grateful for that. How difficult, Nico, is it being a dad? It, it's a tough job. Heavy expectations, especially being a man raising a, a female. <laughs> that's an that's a added stressor to, a, to being a dad. But heavy expectations tough. You know, you got to be, you got to be tough, but you have to be soft at the same time. And you have to be a teacher. You know, you're a guide, you're a protector, you're a teacher, you're a teddy bear (laughs) and you're a disciplinarian. So it is a a combination of things being a dad and it can be tough, especially being a young single dad starting out. Looking back at all of it and obviously, you know, with your daughters, I mean, in particular, what do they have to say to you? I'm hoping they're very proud of you. Yeah, she is. She is very proud. And, you know, a lot of, you know, once she hit her teenage years, you got the, the teenage rebellion. So there were some issues there for a little while that we overcame. I think most parents deal with a little difficulty in those teenage years, but she is very proud. She is very happy. And she actually came back and said, you know what, dad, <laughs> you were right. I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to listen to you, you know, for that little short time period there, but you were right. And I appreciate everything that you taught me. So we have a great relationship and I'm very proud of her. That's a great story. And thank you for sharing part of that with us. I'm going to turn now to Ryan King, excerpt from your book called Freedom to Be. Again, a very powerful excerpt here, Ryan, that's been sent along saying that, you know, your biological father has not been present since you were a baby due to domestic abuse. Fill us in with the rest of that. So my father was not part of my life since I was a baby. Therefore, I haven't seen him. I don't know what he looks like. I haven't even seen a picture of him. And based on what it was told to me, it was because of domestic abuse towards my mother. And I don't know if they're all the particulars, but that's part of, uh, that's a little bit that I know about in regards in, in regards to the relationship between him and my mom. The other thing that you you say uh, always in this excerpt, again, which is so powerful to read, it's you say, I searched on databases at times hoping to find him and hear his side of the story. I wanted to know if he had ever tried to find me or if he wanted a relationship with me. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think us as boys and as men, we all long for that relationship with a with uh with our father if, if our father is not present and active in our lives we all long to just to know what is his personality what is really the the reason know his side of the story um, I heard you know a few others you know their little point of views but I want to really get to know him and find him for myself and really understand that you know we all have a past and the domestic abuse part could be his past. And so at the time that I wanted to look for him, it was way beyond, I mean, I always wanted to look look for him, but when I became a little bit more serious and, and, and searching a little bit for him, I was, you know, over 18 years old. And so therefore I just, I just long for that relationship and just, I just wanted to know what what it is to have a biological father just to have a conversation with him without spoiling it because clearly we want people to read the book and the compilation book but also freedom to be how do you feel now 
I feel uh, now as it relates to my biological father, um, I, I, do, I do have my moments. <laughs> I do have my moments, but at the same time, I am grateful. I am grateful because I know that everything works according to purpose, according to, according to God's purpose. So therefore I'm able to do what I'm doing now, which is, which is being groomed and, and learning how to, how to mentor boys and young men and to give them the tools that is necessary for the, their lives so they can be aware of their identity and not just put all their identity with their connected to their biological father, that they have their own identity. They have their own life, their own gifts, their own talents, their own abilities. Again, it's an incredible story. And and I know we're just telling small snippets of all of your stories on the podcast, because of course, we want people to get that book, to read it, to find out more about all of you and these incredible stories. And so I thank you, Ryan, for sharing those uh, moments with us just now. I'm going to turn now to Mintu Kumar Nath. This one said, two months later, exam results arrived. I anxiously opened the envelope to learn I failed. All of my energy was depleted in that moment. I was saddened that all my hard work resources and financial commitments were washed away in the blink of an eye. Tell us more. I had this dream in my heart, which was the key reason I overcome all those obstacles, all those difficulty and become a chartered accountant of UK and Singapore. This is the short part of the story, but it behind that so many seed it's uh, implants there where the young generation should be able to understand small or big obstacles is the pivoting moment for them to overcome and reach their goal. We just need to have this perseverance to continue to our journey. And every perseverance or every obstacles coming up is actually a way to move forward. It's a way to learn from it. And it's the way of reaching the goal with brighter and better future. Uh, so I, I really feel today that specific lesson, what I got, the word is fail, uh, what I saw in the script, which makes me realize that none of us are able to learn something by doing once we have to keep doing it to get master on something so i had understood it's a first attempt in learning that was the key message which means as a fail first attempt in learning and i am actually traveling to the countries and other places and i settled down in central asia country called as mongolia beautiful country and from here to join all those gentlemen you Brian and all those author of my co-author of the colleagues, I am really grateful to share this story and also try to encourage the young generation and emerging boys to learn from this story something and then grow to their career. So I just actually want to ask you a further question, obviously, about your particular story and what you've been talking about. And obviously, this whole situation of, of failing. We live in a world where, sadly, failure, it's seen as a negative. It's not seen as a positive that, you know, to fail is actually a good thing because that's how we learn. Yeah, absolutely. I concur with you uh, because this is the way you basically go to the mastery level where the many times of failing create you such a better as a human, as your 
um, experience, which is really crucial to give back to the society as well as yourself, because you feel yourself as an accomplished person who can give back someone else with best interest. So failing is a negative connotation to our whole society. But for me, it is really a positive stepping point for everyone's life because the way you decide your failing, you may think, okay, this is my pivoting point to grow or it's my lasting point to die. Its choice is yours. As a hero, every hero should be having that pivoting point and grow from that point because it's the bouncing back opportunity. It's nothing negative, but it is really positive. And for that positive, I am just saying, it's a first attempt in learning. So no one able to learn by appearing one time. We should learn many, many times. If you look at the young kids who just start learning, they bumps and drop and scar so many times once they are learning, walking and swimming and so on. They have to try and then only they will learn this walking or swimming and so on. So I think this failure had to be taken as a positive connotation in our society. And then only we are able to pivot in a next level of our life. Kevin Booker Jr., I'm going to turn to you now again. Your excerpt, I'm going to read a little section out here. It said, the same advice I give myself, I give to you. Do not buy into ignorance. Remember, they have the same problem as you. Just like my DEI training environment, I recognize my interaction with someone may change their entire life. It could be the first time they are challenged to reflect on their biases of someone who does not look like them. Tell us more. In the state of Connecticut, there are 169 towns and 153 towns are predominantly white. And 16 towns are where people who have been historically disenfranchised in the state of Connecticut are concentrated. Having to navigate through these spaces is very challenging. And most people who have been historically disenfranchised face on a daily basis, this type of hostility that you see navigating through these different spaces. And my experience has been that some people will always underestimate you because of your race, your background, your class. But I want the reader to see that they should never allow anyone to put you in a box. Continue pushing yourself to be your best and stay focused on your dreams and aspirations. Never forget where you come from or your ancestors who have fought so hard for you to be where you are and what they have been through in order for you to be where you are today. I want the reader to know that they can achieve anything they put their mind to and do not allow others to limit your achievements because of the false narrative that they have of who you are. This is why I wrote my chapter to shed light on this issue that is detrimental to all of our communities and to uplift those who are dealing with these circumstances on a daily basis. Let me put this question to you, Kevin. The media, of course, doesn't help the situation, often biased in one direction or another, and is often sort of like either tone deaf or color blind. But also, we need to address diversity, I think, also in the classroom as well, because I think we can all agree Nobody is born a racist. They're taught to be racist. And, and that can be to like knocked on the head if we actually have more diversity and, and better education. Don't you agree? Absolutely. I totally agree with that. It's, I think of um, a quote by Maya Angelou, uh, Brian, right now. She once said, I've learned that people will forget what you said 
people will forget what you did, but people will never ever forget how you made them feel. I've been an educator over 20 years, and I realize that it's extremely important to always make sure that you are inclusive in your classroom environment, you are accepting and welcoming, and you made your, your students feel safe in that environment. But that type of skill set needs to be taught. You need to have individuals who have those tools who can also teach others in the classroom to be inclusive as well so that we can move our communities in a positive direction so that we can continue breaking this vicious cycle that is destroying our communities on so many levels. And finally, Carl Hemingway. I'm going to read a little bit of your excerpt uh, here, Carl. To stay positive, do not listen to the wounded, vengeful, unhappy divorcees. They can only make you the same as themselves. Realize that they don't matter. Instead, find people that have gone through similar situations and listen to them. What I'm trying to accomplish in my chapter is to tell my story and to help in a small way to share how I was able to persevere and believe in myself, despite at the time what felt like a very dehumanizing, unfair situation, dealing with the family court system, going through divorce and an acrimonious child custody battle, in addition to dealing with the bias, which works against men in this situation, And on top of that, I had a a coast-to-coast experience dealing with the court system, both in California and in Massachusetts. What did you learn out of this? I mean, what's what's one of the takeaways that you really took from all of this? Well, Brian, I believe that we have to look at the long game and realize that uh, it's very difficult just day to day, putting one foot in front of the next, and to have hope, to focus on your purpose in achieving your goals, whether it be getting to the next court date or getting your uh, child to school on time in the morning, or just being able to face uh, another day and believe in yourself be able to work in a positive way, not get jaded, not get bitter, and to be open to having the opportunity to start your life over and to move past, to still be standing and still be yourself, not lose yourself in what is happening because it's not easy. I think, you know, all of us having listened to each one of you can find something in everything that you've all said in our our own lives at some point. And it's great to be able to hear the positiveness being reinforced by all of you. And basically, you know, saying to men out there, it's okay to fail, but pick yourself up. And there's ways and means that, you know, you can move forward. I want to acknowledge Tara Hall, who is the visionary author of Emerging Men. She can't actually join us on this particular interview. But of course, we want to acknowledge that Tara, along with you, has helped to make this book happen. I don't know if one of you just wants to say a quick few words in Tara's absence about, you know, how that collaboration happened. Tara recently finished a book project with Emerging Women, 
And she decided, hey, I think this, uh, this would be very important to get a collection of men together to share their perspectives. She began to reach out to some of the fellas in this group and, and see if there's interest out there. And of course, we stepped up to the challenge. We thought this was an amazing opportunity. And Tara is an amazing coach and, you know, guided us through it seamlessly and just loved the way it came together. Love being able to connect with the gentlemen in this group and in this project and proud of Tara and she's proud of us. And we just want to give her a huge shout out for, for putting this together. And how well did you know each other before this? I mean, were you close or, or were you brought together through this book? A few of the members in, in this project knew her, but I didn't know her at all. I got to know her through this project. And now we're we're, we're, we're brother and sister now. We're family now. But I didn't know her personally. And Nico, did all of you guys, did you know each other in some way? Or, or did the book also bring all of you guys together as well? The book brought most of us together. I did know Ryan King, but I didn't know any of my, my newfound brothers before this project. I mean, it's an absolutely great idea. We're sorry that Tara can't join us, but we wanted to make sure that she did get a mention and recognition for the fact that, uh, as we say, that she has been the visionary author of this book. And as you also said, Nico, Emerging Women as well. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm sorry that we have not done justice to this in this short amount of time on the podcast, but sadly, it is the length of the podcast. But we will follow up on this. The book obviously is available for people to buy, and I urge them obviously to go out and uh, and to purchase it and to read more about these inspiring stories to Nico Johnson, Ryan King, Mintu Kumar Nath, Kevin Booker Jr. and Carl Hemingway. Gentlemen, thank you ever so much for sharing your stories in the book and for sharing a little bit with us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having us. An Emerging Men by Tara Hall is available now from Amazon in paperback format and in digital format for your Kindle. The American Red Cross blood supply is at historically low levels this winter, and we're facing a dangerous situation across the country. Without the blood they need, hospitals may be forced to make tough decisions about patient care. Donors are needed now to ensure blood is available for everyone who needs it, when they need it. The good news is, you can help. Make an appointment to give now. Visit redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Patients are counting on you. Tree damage caused by high winds, hurricanes, or stormy weather? Green Valley Tree has you covered. We offer emergency storm service for residential, commercial, and even municipalities. From full removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken and fractured limbs, no job too big or small. If you need immediate emergency service outside our regular business hours, call our emergency hotline at 860-966-5710 and visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for details of our other services. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. As the legislative session in Hartford kicks off this month, advocates are hopeful that the General Assembly will pass a medical aid in dying bill after it saw movement last year for the first time. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service has more. Last March, House Bill 6425 passed out of the Public Health Committee in a 24-9 vote. A first for a version of aid in dying bills introduced multiple times over the last 25 years. The bill would allow adult patients with terminal illnesses and six months to live to access lethal medication. 
Tim Appleton of Compassion and Choices says it's evidence of the momentum for medical aid and dying in Connecticut. The efforts of the tens of thousands of supporters have really begun to impact lawmakers in the state capitol. They began to understand the inequity of the status quo that says someone in Middletown, New Jersey, has more options at end of life than someone in Middletown, Connecticut. State Rep. Jonathan Steinberg is a co-chair of the Public Health Committee. He says they'll be introducing a new medical aid and dying bill on Monday, and he hopes to have a public hearing before the end of the month. Opponents of medical aid and dying say these laws violate the obligation of physicians to do no harm to patients, while proponents say safeguards in place protect against abuse or coercion. I'm Emily Scott. Detect, a Guilford, Connecticut-based biotech firm, has been awarded up to $30 million by the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, to create the first combined rapid COVID and flu at-home test. Dr. Jonathan Rothberg is the founder of Detect, a company that created the first laboratory-accurate at-home COVID test in just under 18 months. Rothberg says they set a world record with that product and intend to do it again. My personal goal is to get it out there this year. And absolutely, that's a stretch. But, you know, my favorite talk is still the rice talk that John F. Kennedy said. We do these things because they're difficult and we're going to do them fast. And New Haven Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro said why she was happy to see Detect win the contract. I have the honor of chairing the House Appropriations Committee and I chair the subcommittee that funds BARDA. And I want to fund BARDA to the highest degree that we possibly can. And I am excited to see their funding at work right here in Connecticut. Detect has already been awarded over $8 million by the Department of Health and Human Services for their groundbreaking at-home COVID test that provides laboratory-accurate results in under an hour. The companies say they plan to reduce the price of the new combined test to compete with home antigen tests currently available from pharmacies. 30 years ago, on February 15th, Foxwoods Casino and Resort opened its doors for the first time to the public. It was to be the first of two casinos in the state, with Mohegan Sun opening five years later. Rodney Butler is the chairman of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, owners of Foxwoods, and said over the years they brought a lot to Connecticut. Over the past three decades, we have had the privilege of partnering with tens of thousands of employees who have helped us provide unparalleled entertainment to over 300 million visitors, generated over $4.4 billion in slot payments to the state, and created nearly $40 billion of economic impact within the state of Connecticut, helping to support the state's economy. Jason Guyatt is the president and CEO of Foxwoods and revealed some of the casino's ambitious expansion plans for the next few years. Great Wolf Lodge is coming to Mashantucket. It'll be an indoor water park resort set to open in 2024, and just another opportunity to visit Foxwoods and create lasting memories while also providing Northeast families a close and convenient year-round getaway. Foxwoods also unveiled expansion plans for a new 75,000-square-foot expo center opening in the fall and a new high-stakes bingo hall opening this spring. The resort is also giving away $30,000 every month for the remainder of the year to local nonprofits in the state. In the day this week, the Stonington School System has announced that 24 people have applied to be the district's new superintendent of schools. The candidates come from 10 different states, with the majority from New England, New York and New Jersey, with one candidate from within the school system. 
The school board is seeking a new superintendent to replace Van Riley, who will retire at the end of the current school year after leading the district for the past nine years. The board hopes to choose a new superintendent by April 1st, with that person beginning work by July 1st. The job currently pays more than $200,000 annually. In addition, the board has slightly delayed the hiring of a new high school principal to replace Mark Frieser, who is resigning on July 1st until after the hiring of the new superintendent. This will allow the new superintendent to offer input on the hiring of the new principal. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, a Wyndham County Police Department is working toward reforming a regional SWAT team that could include officers from Plainfield. The Willimantic Police Department currently has the ability to deploy an in-house special weapons and tactics team whose members are tasked with responding to out-of-the-ordinary incidents, including hostage negotiations, high-risk warrant service, active shooter situations and crowd control. Plainfield Police Deputy Chief Will Wolfberg said his department years ago allowed officers to join the Willimantic tactical team, but manpower issues later scuttled the cooperative effort. And in the Chronicle this week, following a dispute with Lyman Real Estate regarding a proposed rent increase, the Eastern Connecticut Veterans Community Centre and Wyndham Region Chamber of Commerce have vacated their Tyler Square location. The two organisations returned to the chamber's former building at 1010 Main Street. There are no words to express how upset the core group of volunteers are and the veterans that see this as their home away from home, said Wyndham Regional Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Officer and President Diane Nadu. Nadu said the chamber was paying $1,000 a month rent and was prepared to pay $2,000 a month this spring. But she said the chamber was about to eventually be charged $8,650 a month in rent, something it cannot afford. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.